Are you still buying your meat from the supermarket? If so, you simply don't know what you're getting. Was the animal treated ethically? Was it fed contaminated grain? Was it chemically treated just before processing? If you care about your health and that of the animal, you'll want to know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, buying directly from the farmer solves for all these problems. Jake and Anne Walkie run Walkie Farms, a regenerative operation in Albury, New South Wales, raising beef, lamb, pastured pork and eggs to the highest standards of animal welfare, land stewardship and chemical free practice. I am excited to partner with Walkie Farm to offer you 10% off the entire Walkie range, from delicious steaks to sausages, lamb rocks, racks and even lard and tallow to replace your seed oils. All orders are packaged and shipped frozen to your door all around Australia. If you have a local farm, by all means, source from them. But if you lack easy access to regenerative produce, then Walkie Farms have you covered. Use code DRMAX at the checkout. That's D-R-M-A-X for 10% off. Circadian health is a bedrock of optimal health. No matter your exercise routine or how clean your diet, if you disrespect your light environment, you will get sick. Cancer, diabetes, obesity, mental health disorders, autoimmune disease, thyroid problems are just some of the issues that can either be worsened or fixed with circadian choices. My 30-day circadian reset is a guided program to help you learn the basics of circadian health. For 30 days, we focus strictly on things like seeing every sunrise, spending as much time grounded as possible, taking sun breaks throughout the day, and blocking blue light and artificial light at night. When you join up, you'll get access to four hours of lessons on how to make key circadian changes, as well as weekly live Q&As. If this is something that you're interested in, then join up today because we start on June the 1st. And if you need some basic equipment, including blue blocking glasses and circadian-friendly lighting, then use my code DRMAX on bondcharge.com to grab all of these products. Now, on to the show. Right, I'm here with Dr. Lucy Burns. She's a GP in Victoria, Australia, and co-founder of Real Life Medicine, which is a telehealth service uh, helping people with diet and lifestyle. Um, Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Ah, oh, thanks so much for having me, Max. It's a great, you know, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Fantastic. Well, um, can we start by just giving the listeners a little bit of a background about yourself and your journey in medicine? Sure. Sure. So, um, you know, I've been a GP for a long time. I graduated medicine last millennium, did my general practice training in the uh, 90s and spent a long time in general practice. Uh, and look, then I actually went and worked for Defence for, for 15 years and for various reasons made a foray back into general practice. And the most interesting thing that I saw in that 15 years away from general practice where I was really just working with mainly young people is coming back and just noticing the impact of chronic disease in our, you know, older but but not anciently older, just retirement-aged people. It was just phenomenal. And I thought, oh, my God, this is just, you know, it's tragic because these people have worked really hard their whole lives they work hard they um you know save they're ready for retirement and then often struck down by various you know conditions that just completely impact their quality of life and ruin their retirement 
it's um it is it's tragic when you see people um i guess manifesting the consequences of decades of particular lifestyle advice a lot of which i don't agree with um and then showing up in a clinic or in an emergency department with you know consequences of type 2 diabetes or um ischemic heart disease and it does it it, it really breaks your heart um because um yeah I, I think a lot of the time they've been misled with what what they've been taught to eat Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that it is, I think, well, I'd love to say the message is getting out there, but I don't actually think that it is from all of our colleagues that the low-fat diet that we were all encouraged to do from the 80s has been a monumental disaster. It has just encouraged the increased consumption of sugars, both, you know, sweet sugars and savoury sugars, because if you remove one macronutrient, you have to replace it with something else. And the, you know, that combined with the just rise and proliferation of processed food, um, you know, in the quest to make our lives easier has, has just been a health disaster. Yeah. Um, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, and in terms of the patients you're seeing, are they predominantly the older older patients are you seeing younger patients as well or what, what how are you seeing this chronic disease manifest in, in in the patients that you treat yeah so i think it's across the spectrum it's starting earlier so you know again when i first graduated um type 2 diabetes was not very common and it was always in older australians you know in 70 80s um uh, now now we see it in people in their 30s uh 40s we see you know, I see lots of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is increasing, uh, and they will come because they're, you know, perhaps trying to have a baby and it, it's it's not working. So I think that there's various combinations of things. Um, but I guess one of the things I, I always talk to my, my patients about and one of our passionate, man, you know, mantras at Real Life Medicine is that, this this is not the individual's fault. I know the individual sometimes feels like they're responsible and they'll say, oh, well, you know, I put the food in my mouth. But there's so many factors that lead to that that, is, that are subversive and driven by vested interest groups that really it's not their fault. It is, it is, it, you know, it's a combination of their genetics, of their of circumstances. Um, it's not their fault, but at the end of the day, it, it is their responsibility to fix it because no one no one's coming to rescue them no one's coming to fix it for them so the the patient takes responsibility in fixing it but not I really say don't take don't blame don't take responsibility for the blame because it's not your fault and uh, I mean I agree I agree that there's there's so many factors conspiring against the individual um, in a quest to, to live a healthy lifestyle and 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 eat appropriately i guess if we if we think from maybe the top from a very broad societal point of view all the way down to the individual themselves can you give an idea about what you think are some of these interests and some of these kind of headwinds that 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 people are up against when when they're trying to live healthy healthily Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I, I, it's very well known that I am fairly scathing of big food companies. Um, and it, within those food companies, there's two sorts that are contributing. So the first one is the, you know, the, the junk food companies and, you know, companies like Coke and Mars, they're, 
they're not actually trying to pretend their product is anything other than sugary food. They might call it a treat. They might use various languages around it, but nobody nobody out there would tell you that a Mars bar is healthy Then and, and they're not even trying to tell you that. But the second food company, you know, category of food companies are the air quotes, health food companies, because health food companies are not healthy and they're they're tricking people. They're hoodwinking people into believing their product is healthy. All their marketing is around that and their products are just processed rubbish that people buy unwittingly and particularly feed their children with it, thinking they're doing the right thing. So I have a particular scathing opinion of those companies. Yeah, and and I think the the epitome or the archetypical product of that second category of health food um, company you describe is almond milk or or um, some kind of plant milk, which is uh, not in any way healthy. It's essentially uh, an emulsion of of vegetable oil, seed oil. Um, you know, refined and packaged and then sold for $8 per litre in a carton. Um, And people and and everyone is told that this is somehow uh, a healthy alternative to to dairy milk, um, which is, in my mind, just completely ridiculous. Yeah, I think it's tricky. I mean, there are obviously people that have lactose intolerance and people that are sensitive to the the. Um, cow's milk proteins but again it's that packet the messaging around what these milks are and, and you know part of it is that there was a gap in the market and these clever companies have filled it but they've filled it with cheap products and I mean look there are some brands of of nut milks or plant milks that are better than others but it's hard for them to distinguish themselves because at the end of the day they're competing on price not necessarily quality and you know if something's cheap it's cheap for a reason yeah no i agree i agree completely so so the we've got someone and and they're they're up against all this messaging they're being told um that you know a whole bunch of foods are, are healthy for them when they're in fact they're not, and they've also yep. at the same time barraged by advertising from Cadbury and the rest of these companies to oh just enjoy a treat you know have one yep. treat today per day it's you're going to be fine, um, and then so that they, they, they're receiving all this messaging and then on an individual level there's and each individual has reason why that they find themselves overeating or addicted to to refined foods. So can you share with, with us your thoughts about, about the reasons why each individual might be overeating? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, it, it all boils down to the two, the two things that, you know, real life medicine that we are always talking about, which is your physiology and your psychology. So the physiology um, is completely related to your metabolic hormones. Once you have hyperinsulinemia, so once you're levels of insulin are high in your blood, you basically block off your fat stores. You can't access them. So you can only access fuel when you eat. So people get hungry. They really do. They run out of fuel, even though they're, you know, people are saying, other people are saying to them, oh, you've got heaps of fuel. What are you carrying on about? They literally can't get it. So no point having all this fuel if you can't access it. So they're hungry. So that's kind of the physiology of it. In particular, carbohydrates also are not satiating. 
so they're not filling, which is why people eat, you know, pasta out of a giant bowl and they make a special bowl for it. Nobody's eating pasta out of a little bowl because you need a lot and it only fills you by just stimulating the stretch receptors in your tummy, in your stomach, whereas the beautiful combination of fat and protein is highly satiating and it's very hard to eat, overeat fat and protein combined. I'm often telling a little story about, um, you know, and again, just debunking a few calorie myths that nine Tim Tams has the same calories as 12 eggs. Now, I can easily eat in my old days, in my old particularly, you know, when I ate a lot of processed food, I could easily eat nine Tim Tams over, you know, watching a movie, they're easy, just dump them in your cup of tea, suck them, and in fact there'd be two left and even though I'd start to feel a bit sick, I'd still scoff them in because, you know, you had to finish the packet. So there's that sort of drive. But, you know, if I if somebody said to me, here's 12 boiled eggs, I just, you'd get to about three, maybe four, and then I'd just go, no, I'm done, put them back. And you just can't keep eating them. They just don't have the same, you know, drive that processed food does. And, and for the so, sorry, for the, for the international uh, listeners, a Tim Tam is a is a chocolate covered biscuit uh, cookie, which is essentially candy. It's it's yeah. It's really just a candy. Yeah. Absolutely, it is our iconic Australian biscuit or cookie, and yeah, it's a it's a rectangular, double layered thing with uh, like a chocolate covered Oreo, really, but in a you know so yeah it, they're they're pretty intense and most people will tell you how amazing they are but they're yeah very hyper palatable so i guess they're your physiological drivers for why people eat and perhaps overeat but then more importantly is your psychological drivers and they're really uh, you know the the you know what is often called the emotional eating but that people eat to numb their emotions or soothe or mitigate uncomfortable emotions. And I think our society has a huge um, issue with people not understanding how to manage their emotions because we're always just sort of trying to be happy and not recognising that actually difficult emotions that, you know, people, they're they're part of the human experience. We have to have them. Uh, because that's what makes us human. And just like the more comfortable emotions of happiness or joy or satisfaction, they all pass. You know, no one is happy 100% of the time. It just comes and it goes, just like sadness, just like dissatisfaction, anger, resentment. They all just come and go. But, yeah, our current society is very emotionally illiterate, Um I think these days kids are learning a lot more in schools, which is fantastic because it's our my generation, you know, ten or twenty years either way that are that are not as emotionally literate. Yeah, uh, and and I really really like that um, that breakdown of, of physiological and psychological causes of overeating and obesity, and uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think even though everyone's eating a range of these refined grains, sugars, and seed oils to make themselves overweight, everyone has a unique reason why that, that, that they're engaging in, in food addiction particularly. My, my personal belief is that, um, like you, similar to what you said, is that it's a manifestation, overeating is a manifestation of, of trauma and of deep-seated hurt that is lying unexamined. Um, and 
in as you said in this modern society no one's encouraged to to really dig dig deep into themselves to understand themselves to understand their psyche to understand the behaviors perhaps subconsciously that are driving the what what they're doing and what they're eating so um it's 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 imperative on the individual to i guess understand these these reasons and then as a as a means to kind of addressing the the true reason why they're they're addicted to to, to refined food Oh, look, absolutely. And, you know, I often tell this little story of my daughter when she was about 12. Um, we had a flock of chickens. Her favourite one was called Toffee, which, again, probably just goes to the amount of sugar that was in our house because one of our dogs is actually called Sugar. That The chook was called Toffee. And um, it was this little silky, cute little thing that um, Ruby would carry around with her. And one day, you know, she went off to school camp. This is Ruby, not the chicken. And um, I was out there feeding the chooks, you know, the scraps. And I look over and one of our chooks is looking a bit shabby and she's kind of keeled over against the chook house. So I go and pick her up and I realise it's toffee. And as I pick her up, she's actually really thin and emaciated. And I thought, ooh, I think this chicken's been sick for a little while. So I bring her inside and I'm nursing her and I'm, you know, gave her a bath and I'm Googling, you know, how to fix a sick chicken and all this sort of stuff. And after a couple of days, I thought, well, I think I'm going to go to the vet. So we took her to the vet and the vet said, no, I'm sorry, this chicken's, you know, she's she's long gone. She needs to go to chicken heaven. So I left the vet with an empty box and then I had to go and pick up Ruby. And so, you know, I went to the school and it's five days. You can imagine she's exhausted. She gets in the car and she how is everybody? And she's reeling off all the pets and we get to Toffee and she goes, how's Toffee? And I have to go, oh, oh, Toffee died. And she was just, her little face just crumpled and she was sobbing and I was sobbing. And so, you know, I did what probably lots of mothers would do. We guys said to her, let's go and get a milkshake. And so we drove into the cafe and, you know, I would have bought her anything in the shop anything, as much of anything, to kind of cheer her up for two reasons. One, you know, I wanted her to be better and two, was actually dealing with my own discomfort of watching my child hurt. So I wanted to fix her for her but but mainly for me. And so we did that and then we went home and, yeah, we had a little ceremony but we didn't talk at all about grief or loss or heartache, or any of that sort of stuff. I didn't know, and again, this, you know, this is my daughter's now 22, so this is 10 years ago. I didn't know. I just did what I'd been taught, which is when you feel sad, eat something. And so, you know, I perpetuated that cycle. So these days, you know, she has had ongoing grief, as all people do, you know, break up with a boyfriend and my brain goes, oh, go and buy her a block of chocolate. But, you know, I now don't because I think, well, that's not going to help. It'll help short term for a few minutes, but it's not going to help her long term. She needs to process. So, you know, we do a lot more talking these days. Yeah. Um, um, that's a, an amazing story and very, very illustrative of of what I think is a, is a trend or, or a very, very common occurrence of, of using uh, processed food and, and sweet food to soothe ourselves um when we're dealing with something difficult um and essentially it's being used as a drug i mean in that situation the sugar it's it's not it's not you're not we're not being used for its nutritional value it's purely as it's as a drug form 
Um, so I guess like helping people realize um, or catching themselves when they're using or, or reaching for the sweet food um, and reframing it, maybe just, just remember, like, think about what you're doing. This is instead yeah. of eating the food, talk about the grief and, and talk about um, what, what's happened um, as, a, as a more useful coping mechanism. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I do say to people, look, the reason we do it is that it works. Like, you know, nobody's reaching for a bowl of broccoli to soothe. Broccoli doesn't, it can't compete with processed food. But remembering that processed food is manipulated by food scientists and food engineers to generate the most maximum amount of dopamine possible. It works in exactly the same way as any drug, you know, illicit or not. And just because it's legal and just because it's available on every street corner doesn't mean that it's not harmful. Yeah, I mean, well said. And I'd I'd like to use that as a kind of pivot to the next point, which is your patient population, which are, I presume, mostly women. And I really wanted to, I guess, get your opinion and get your thoughts on this idea that women are just not smaller men, um, physiologically, Mm. hormonally, very, very different. And how how do you conceive or how do you approach um, metabolic disease but also just holistic health from a female point of view? Yeah, so great question. And I think there's some things that are uh, happening for women who are, say, in their their 30s and 40s and 50s and older that are different to men. I mean, there's lots of things that are different, but from a societal level and it's changing a bit for the men of the future, so I'll talk about that in a minute. But for women, women's worth was entirely tied up in their body size. So, you know, for decades women have been told that unless you meet certain criteria, then, you know, you're not nearly as worthy or attractive or as desirable as someone who is thinner, taller, leaner. And so for such a long time women have been dieting for decades. So I I always think this would have to be one of the most triggering sentences for a woman from a doctor, which would be, have you ever thought of losing weight? Because I can tell you, every single woman thinks about it nonstop, nonstop. So it's like, yeah, mate, I have. And they've tried. And this is the thing they have been trying. The problem has been twofold. One is that the advice that we that that has been given, for which I used to give and receive, because I was the queen of dieting, Weight Watchers lifetime member, a yo-yo dieter extraordinaire, was really nothing to do with nutrition, nothing to do with satiating food. It was all about calories and all about just reduce your calories, move more, doesn't matter what the food is as long as you're under your calories. And so, and consequently, and particularly Weight Watchers as a company back then, very much geared towards more processed food. So it was really this idea that it was like a transactional relationship. You do this very hard thing because, honestly, calorie counting and calorie restriction without nutrient density is hard. It's tiring. It's You're hungry. But in, in my brain, I used to think, but it's going to be worth it because by the end I'll be thin and then I can relax. So I was fed these double I. One, it will be worth it. And two, I'll be able to do something differently once I get there. 
just go back to my old ways. So there's this what we call diet trauma that has happened for women, which is less so for men currently. Now, younger men, I think, coming forward uh, are now exposed to Instagram or, you know, social media. And again, there's a lot more um, emphasis now on men's bodies and having a six pack or having abs or having guns or whatever it is that I think is going to feed into this this diet culture of the future. So I think I'm, I'm worried, I guess, about the young men of the of now. But hopefully, uh, and again, it's probably me being a little opti- op- optimistic, but I would love them to know that they can, you know, have athletic bodies with real food. They don't need to have protein powders every minute or take steroids to, do, to get that. But anyway, that's a separate sort of problem whereas um women women have you know pre-men premenopausal women we have hormones they're cyclical they change our mood they change our bodies every month this goes on this different cyclical changes that don't happen to young men they just have their same levels so working with that and understanding your hormones is really important because all of those sex hormones have metabolic effects as well they're all just part of one big orchestra yeah that's um that's a great insight and i think that um understanding um what has been the narratives that were were passed i guess get helps us understand what what the situation we're in currently and the focus on calories over nutrient density is leading to malnutrition effectively Mm. micronutrient malnutrition and and Mm. how that presents whether that's in the form of obesity which is a compensatory overconsumption of seed oils and carbs and sugar or simple simple just thin and being actually visibly malnourished i mean i guess there's there's a couple of presentations of of the same thing so what's your take on um malnutrition from a micronutrient point of view in in women and particularly young women and particularly given that the narratives around vegetarian and vegan eating is so prevalent nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. There was an ad on telly when I was growing up called Feed the Man Meat and it was all about trying to get red meat back on the table and it was really, you know, and I had this jingle which I could still, you know, still sing in my head and I actually think it should have been Feed the Girl Meat. Women have periods. They lose iron every single month every single month, yet somehow red meat is a man's food. You know, it's all about, ah, the man and their steak or whatever, and it's really, it's it's women's food. Women need the iron and you cannot get enough iron from, you know, vegetables. So I, I have two daughters, well, one you've already heard about, the other one, same. They are actually vegetarian, which, look, that's... It's not how I would like them to eat, but they're their own people and they have their reasons for it and it's not up to me to change their philosophy. They're adults now. However, they are both iron deficient and have been at various stages throughout their life, Um, one severely iron deficient. And, you know, I would love them just to eat red meat. That would would solve it. That would settle it down. Um, But, you know, again, that what I want for them and what they want for them are two different things. So you always have to meet people where they're at. It's easy to just have your dogma and 
I think, you know, say, well, this is the best way, the only way, don't talk to me if you're not going to do it my way. And that becomes unhelpful, particularly as a doctor, where we really have to meet people where they're at. And, you know, my thought is, well, hopefully over time, one day they'll see the benefits of eating red meat again. But, you know, in the meantime, I just keep checking their iron yeah. and uh, reminding them that they need to supplement because they can they just cannot get enough from the plant foods they're eating. Mm. And I think this is what a point that I really like to emphasize is that young women are particularly empathetic and caring and considerate. (laughs) And the types of narratives that are being perpetuated around the plant-based eating sphere are very much designed to pull and tug on those heartstrings Mm. of empathy of of young women. And that's why I believe they're particularly insidious. Um, You know, eat a vegetarian diet for the environment this nebulous concept of the environment that doesn't separate out separate out things like regenerative beef, ethically raised beef, or the collateral byproduct of small mammals that get killed through combine harvesting. Um, do it for um, yeah, animal welfare. Do, I mean, there's all these these reasons yes. that, if not taken deep and not examined deeply, become simply another layer of unexamined belief that have consequences and they have real real life consequences um as you say i mean i don't think your daughters are alone in 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 having iron deficiency and it's so common we hear you know i'm tired all the time and i mean Mm. iron deficiency is core part of or a core reason component cause of of that type of tiredness um so i think uh, i mean it's something that I, i i feel strongly about because um it's almost like it's not a fair fight you're up against these these, these really engineered marketing narratives that are so good at um, shaping people's consumer and, and purchasing habits? Uh, 100%, like 1,000% if I can do that because that that is exactly my daughters have fallen victim of this and they believe that, um, that their plant-based eating is healthier for them and, you know, and, and I have, and in particular one of mine does the I'm tired but you know i'm the mother so no matter what i say it's almost like um, i've got no authority um so you know one day i just hope they'll come across somebody else maybe you max who will just tweak their their mind their interest just to open you know again as the mother i have no authority over them but it is it's really really interesting and i think that it is it is if anyone thinks this is just um, a fair, as you said, a fair fight, it's not. It, it is designed, these big juggernauts, particularly the this uh, fake meat, plant-based meat, that is a massive, massive insidious campaign for which I'm pleased to see it seems like isn't winning. It seems like um, according to various articles that I've read lately that these companies are not raking it in like they thought they would, which I'm happy about. But I think that, um, you know, that in some ways I'm surprised that the agricultural industry haven't been able to trademark, like the word meat, for example, that you can write something is plant-based chicken. Like seriously, how, how can you do that? So So that it makes it seem pretty reasonable. And then it's only when you turn over the packet and you see the 50,000 ingredients that are in it, you know, 53 ingredients versus one, 
that you go, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is anything like chicken. Mm, yeah. And look, I, I mean, I empathize with your struggle. I mean, what do they say? No, no one is a prophet in their own land. Um, it's very difficult <laughs> to, to change people often close to you. Um, I think that one of the key maybe reasons or behavioral change points that, um, is there for particularly for say young women on a not thriving on a plant-based diet is um is pregnancy and the idea that if you're going into a pregnancy in a vegetarian or vegan state um or having not eaten meat for one year five years 10 years 14 15 16 20 years you're really putting yourself on the back foot and Mm. um it's it's a simple explanation of the physiology of pregnancy which is you are growing a fetus which is functionally parasitic to your nutrient stores and it will take exactly what it needs to mm. um, myelinize its brain, to ossify its bones, to build its soft tissue. Um, and p- w- women are left as husks if they aren't prepared um, nutritionally and physiologically. So um, maybe that's an idea, if, I'm not sure, for, for your daughters, but uh, I think that's something that um, – needs to be talked about more. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, it's a good segue into pregnancy and pre-pregnancy, which, you know, again, 20-something years ago, people would just rock up to the GPs announcing they're pregnant. And these days there's a lot more emphasis on pre-pregnancy health, of the particular of the mother. Um, Also, it, it should be of the father as well. But at the moment the emphasis is, is on women, which is great because as, you know, as we're learning more and more about epigenetics, which is the ability for our body to turn off, turn genes off and on, which seems amazing. Like I just used to think that your genes were your genes and that's it. And now we know that, you know, they there's signaling molecules that turn them off or turn them on or make them louder or make them softer, depending on what language you like to use. And that the environment in which a baby grows is so important to its future health and that that this is the the best opportunity women have and and everybody wants the best for their baby we all know that you know we spend and again industry know that but we you know people spend lots and lots of money preparing for their baby they want their baby to have the best life possible all of those things of course so the best thing that uh, that a woman can do and a, and a man the parents is to have their physical health optimized before they conceive and um the epigenetic point is just is so interesting and it's so fascinating and for for a really brief explainer for for people who aren't familiar you the genetic material that make up your your cells your bodies your proteins everything um that that isn't changing itself generation on generation that changes on on a very long time scale um over hundreds thousands of years but what um dr lucy is talking about is epigenetic changes which are chemicals that get added um enzymes that get added and removed to the dna structure itself that affect how the genes get expressed and what this uh, allows us to do from a um, physiological and a body point of view is respond to the environment of our parents and our grandparents to give our children the greatest chance of survival. And I think um, there can be beneficial and there can be detrimental um, 
epigenetic changes. I mean, uh, the the Dutch famine comes to mind, and they noticed a whole heap of epigenetic changes in women who were starving, and the propensity mm. for that the children to develop obesity and metabolic disease was 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 massively changed, and I believe increased um, in women who, who who were starving during pregnancy. So um, that's that's a great point, and I feel like it's something that you can convey to people that their diet matters and what they eat matters because you're passing that information on to the next generation and the one after it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a particularly pertinent if the baby, if the baby, if the fetus is a baby, is a girl, then her, all of her genetic material is already in her eggs. So it's not just her, but it's her children that are then also affected. And I think the best example of this is gestational diabetes, which is a condition that affects, you know, women in pregnancy. And it's when the their blood sugar levels rise, which, again, is it's a progesterone-driven thing by the placenta. So, again, all the hormones, they all interact together. And what we really want is to make sure that the, the mum's blood sugar in pregnancy is as close to perfect as possible. Because we do know that babies that are born to mums who have perhaps gestational diabetes that's not very well controlled, two things happen. One, they're much bigger babies, and and that in itself is just an issue for their birth and whatnot. But secondly, their risk of insulin resistance, polycystic ovarian disease syndrome and um, type 2 diabetes is massively increased due to epigenetics and you know the the key is to really be making sure that we can just monitor mums as closely as possible during pregnancy and the best way like the best way for them to be able to manage their blood sugars in pregnancies is what is the food they eat yeah and um i before we before we talk about gestational diabetes because I, I i agree and i have i have some um, opinions myself on that i just yeah. i just had, had a thought that a vegetarian or a vegan um eating for you know years prior to pregnancy is in my opinion or it seems to me imprinting uh an epigenetic signature of starvation on that fetus yeah and, particularly and I say that and because- if- oh sorry Oh, no, uh, I'm interrupting you. you yeah, go. sorry. Just, just because based on the, the the reality that we know that Homo sapiens are evolved meat eaters, um, yeah. Our, our the consumption of animal meat or consumption of organs of bone marrow was pivotal in our evolution and our development of, uh, as higher primate primates. So, um, yeah, I mean, what are the consequences of of simulating a starvation through voluntary v- vegetarian and vegan e- eating on the fetus? I mean. Who knows? Yet to be determined, but mm. that's not a, a risk that I think people should be taking lightly. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's tricky, and again, it's all in messaging, is that you know, people. The messaging is that plant based diet is healthier, um, and that people who are vegan or are healthier, and there's not a lot of evidence for that. And you know, you can have a pretty unhealthy plant-based diet, you know, a diet of uh, jam sandwiches, that's plant-based, not much health going on there. Um, so it's always important to recognise, you know, what, what is what is, what is is healthy. You know, it, it, it's the, the devil is always in the detail. So one of the things we do know is that in general, 
people who consume a plant-based diet are going to have higher carbohydrates because in order to get anywhere near the amount of protein that they need, it is wrapped in a in carbohydrates. So all of your pulses, which is where the majority of plant-based proteins come from, come with a hefty dose of carbohydrate. Now, that may or may not be a problem for you. If you have the genetic predisposition to insulin resistance, then consuming those high number of carbs is going to be unhelpful. If if you come from a lean family that doesn't have any diabetes in their in their genetics, then then you'll probably be okay. But these days, the, again, it's all all about the epigenetics. The the increasing risk, the increasing amount of insulin resistance is massive. Yeah, and um, the point about ge- the gestational diabetes and the development of, of insulin resistance um, and hyperglycemia in pregnancy, um, the way that it's treated currently um, in Australia and um, in, in other countries is is simply um, – well, it's it's a, of advising li- dietary and lifestyle, not necessarily the correct dietary um, advice. But eventually, the the treatment pathway is not really helpful advice, followed by you know insulin to control the blood sugar. Um, and yeah. this is this is problematic for a number of reasons. Obviously, because you're still in a hyperinsulinemic state, you're still mm. flooding that 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 your body with insulin, and baby is still being exposed to a lot of insulin. So, I mean, what is the if, what what how would you treat a gestational diabetic or avoid the development of gestational diabetes from from your approach well i would like to i guess reflect on dr mary who recently had a baby um who you know she she her her parents both have type 2 diabetes so she's you know genetically predispositioned to insulin resistance she herself had polycystic ovarian syndrome and you know initially had trouble getting pregnant uh during her pregnancy because of her genetics her obstetrician was very uh, they they monitor very closely despite her very low carbohydrate diet she still developed gestational diabetes and she still did require some insulin but it was a sniff. It was hardly any. It was the smallest amount possible, which, you know, I just think it's that that thing. If she was given the standard dietary advice, she would have been on tons of it. So the idea, therefore, is like with all medicine, you know, I think that if we can use the lowest effective dose of medicines, and the way we do that is to optimize our lifestyle with you know good nutritional advice and i know it's confusing because there is you know various schools but certainly if for type 2 diabetes for anything for which there is a carbohydrate intolerance then it just makes sense to reduce those carbohydrates you, you know it, it's like it's it's not rocket science yeah exactly and it, it isn't rocket science and if someone came to you maybe with the intention of falling pregnant within the next two years, um, what tests would you do in terms of working up or investigating the possibility of uh, insulin resistance or a metabolic dysfunction? Yeah. So, you know, like all good doctors, you should take a thorough history, um, assess their risk and do that with both the history and examination. Um, the examination, you know, the hist- there, there are things that are going to point you towards 
potential risk of insulin resistance. Uh, but assuming we've done all of that and we're, you know, maybe worried that they could have insulin resistance, and there's a couple of ways that you can test for it. You could do just a fasting glucose and a fasting insulin and calculate a, um, a thing called HOMA-IR. Interestingly, I find that that is, again, it's a good screen. It's not always accurate. Um, but if they're not on a low, if, if a person's not on a low-carbohydrate diet, I like to do a glucose tolerance test with corresponding insulin levels. Now, it's only... It's really important to, that you don't do this if you're already low carb because it's not going to be accurate. So you're ingesting 75 grams of glucose for nothing. But if you're not low carb, then before you consider going low carb, then this would be a test that I that I frequently order. And it's fascinating because what we see is that a person drinks the glucose drink. We see what their glucose does, but more importantly, how much insulin their body needs to make to get that glucose reading. And so often we'll just see normal glucose readings and people go, oh, see, fine, don't worry about it. But unless you look under the hood, which is just that next step, how much insulin does their pancreas need to make to get this glucose result? And often the, the result is 10 or even 20 times the normal amount. It's massive. And that for those people, that's also called a craft test. And it, and it measures the response of the body's um, insulin secretion as well as um, measuring blood glucose in response to uh, a glucose challenge. Um, and that's that's fascinating. As you, as you mentioned, um, Lucy, you can pick up patients who might have a normal fasting insulin or a normal fasting glucose, but those one-hour and those two-hour readings, um, they blow out, and you can make the diagnosis of of, of of insulin resistance and, and and really help people by getting them on the on the path to resolving that before um, it, it escalates. So um, that that that's yeah. a great that's a great um piece of advice. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um I always say to people it's like a little gift. You've been given a gift into the future. Um, you know, we don't have crystal balls in medicine very often, but this one is if you have insulin resistance, if your craft test or your modified craft test doesn't fit a normal curve, then the risk of you developing type 2 diabetes in the next 10 years is, you know, 100-fold. So here's an opportunity. <laughs> and I do this little picture where I go, you can you can toddle down over to chronic disease hell or you can come over here to healthy life nirvana. And the way you do that is to reduce your carbohydrates, focus on your protein and eat real food. Yeah, I, I love that, and and the the bifurcation is, I mean, it's somewhat com confronting, but it's no, it's it's only the truth, which is, you everyone has a choice. It's um, it's like uh, the Matrix. You can take the red pill or the blue pill. Um, yeah, it's it's up to the individual completely, and yeah, you can continue what you're doing, and you you you'll reap the the reward the consequences, or you can um change, and and yeah, every, everything is possible in terms of a thriving, healthy lifestyle. Um, Absolutely. I, I want you to talk a little bit now about polycystic ovary syndrome, um, mm -hmm. because not many people realise, but this this disease and this condition is itself a manifestation of of insulin resistance. Um, so, can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess it. The, the first thing is there's two sorts of phenotypes, which is phenotype is just a fancy word for saying uh, how people look. The, the far and away most common 
uh, phenotype or the far and away most common way women look who have polycystic ovarian syndrome is they will often be storing excess body fat, particularly around their middle. They will sometimes have acne and sometimes have increased um, hirsutism or hair, so increased hair on their face or arms or something like that. So there's clearly some um, hormonal disturbances going on. And on blood tests, you'll see this, you'll see increased androgens or increased male hormones, a, a derangement in their female hormones, and if we do their insulin levels, they will often be through the roof. So... Um, the it, it's a bit of chicken and egg like everything but there is absolutely no doubt that it, there is genetics that play into it so i said to people again you can't change your genes it's like you get dealt you know a hand of cards and what you get to decide then is how you play them so how you play them with polycystic ovarian syndrome the the best the best thing you can do is start with your nutrition focus on low-carb real food, that will reduce your insulin, okay? It will give your pancreas a rest. It won't have to make quite so much. So that reduces your insulin. As your insulin then reduces, you'll be able to access those body fat stores and that will reduce your, your body fat. As your insulin levels normalize, so too will your reproductive hormones. So you'll start ovulating again because most women with polycystic ovarian syndrome don't ovulate regularly. The second phenotype is, is a thinner woman, sometimes still with the androgens, but not necessarily with the, um, with the obesity. And that, that's still, there's a lot of research going on there and it's quite fascinating. And it's potentially, they're potentially two different conditions just with the polycystic, which means lots of cysts on your ovaries. So from my understanding, the, the thinner woman one, is they still have hyperinsulinemia, and this is the interesting bit, but they don't store fat in the same way that the women with the, the um, you know, perhaps obese phenotype are. So, again, like everything in medicine, it's always fascinating um, that we're still learning. You know, we still don't know. There's lots of stuff we don't know. And I, I yeah. just, every now and then yeah. I go, oh, God, I can't believe we don't know that yet. Yeah, and there is there are also associations with certain environmental chemicals and and toxins, particularly ones of endocrine disrupting nature, um, which include BPA, bisphenol A, um, phthalates, and a range of industrial herbicides and um, pesticides. So that's another interesting area of of, of research and and the evidence that shows that women who are exposed to these chemicals are more likely to have. Um, a PCOS. Whether that's a causal relationship, it's unclear at this point. But um, I, I like to give advice to be really diligent about avoiding food plastics, food contact with plastic, mm. avoiding Teflon pans, avoiding parabens in, in um, cosmetics and, and care products um, for anyone who has polycystic uh, ovaries or, or, or PCOS. So um, that, that, that's, um, that's great, Lucy. And, and the, the next question, I guess, which kind of feeds into the, the polycystic ovary um, presentation, which is a disrupted menstrual cycle. So mm. what's your take on how does, what are the various incarnations that you see of, of irregular or disrupted menstrual cycles and, and what do you think can be done about that? Yeah, so the most common one is um, girls that will come with heavy periods and irregular periods. So they'll... You know they'll come in and 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 
and they may have manifestations of that with things like iron deficiency. And they'll usually come in because their period's irregular. Maybe they get a period every six weeks. Um, and when they get it, it's it's clots and it's heavy and, they, you know, it's embarrassing and there's lots of connotations that come with that. So the thing and the standard treatment for that would be to put somebody on the pill. And the reason that they, and again, there's pros and cons of this. So some people will go, well, you're just masking the problem there by adding in hormones and and that's probably true, but there is some benefit with reducing the thickness of the endometrium. So what happens with polycystic ovarian syndrome is that you women don't ovulate. So they've got their, their, the lining of the uterus, so endometrium is all there. It's ready. It's waiting. It's growing. We're getting progesterone saying, yes, growing, lovely, ready, ready, but no egg comes. And over time, it just goes, oh, my God, I can't hold this up anymore. And so just this big, heavy period comes rather than the standard beautiful little instrument that we've got where we'll have some progesterone, we, um, the egg gets released, that stops the progesterone. If the if the egg's not fertilised, then, then you have your period. So one of the concerns for uh, women who have periods like this is iron deficiency. And the other concern is uh, endometrial problems later on with this very, very thick endometrium that's not protected. So on one hand, the pill is, is an okay thing to do, but it doesn't actually address the cause. So the cause is going back to insulin and going, right, well, maybe if we checked insulin, if we talked to women about, well, and girls, you know, what, what's your diet like? What are you eating? How, man, how many carbohydrates? What's your sugar consumption like? And gave them the option and said, listen, this is you can do this if you want to. You can try changing your nutrition. Who knew that that would make a difference? And particularly getting them to prioritise their protein and if they're open to it, red meat, because that will replace their iron. So doing that will sometimes regulate their cycle without then just going onto the pill. Yeah, um, I mean that that's um, a great advice, and and the yeah the the consequences of having a disrupted cycle again coming back to pregnancy is that it's a sign that things aren't hunky dory. They're not ready. They're not they're not optimized. They're yeah. not firing properly. Um, and it's something that I mean. From your advice, do you tell patients that you know you should have a couple of normal cycles, six months, one year before you try, or what's what's your approach to that? Ah, uh, it's tricky. It's so interesting because sometimes by the time somebody comes to see you, they're ready. Like they're ready to have the baby yesterday. They haven't even got pregnant yet, but they're mm. ready. And so again, always working with with the patient. So patient centered care is really important. Listening, but talking to them about the pros and cons of, right, well, this is this is where we're at. This is what we need to do. Um, you know, it, again, there's things that, that really should happen prior to getting pregnant. You know, women should be taking folic acid or folate. They should be making sure their rubella levels uh, for immunisation are uh, optimised because those sorts of things are super important. You know, obviously we want people to stop smoking. Smoking is incredibly harmful to a fetus. Um, and we, you know, want want people to get their body ready because growing a baby, it's hard work. It's hard work for the mum. It's hard work. And it's, you know, it's a bit like training. You need to train first. So get your body ready for pregnancy by optimising your nutrition. And as part of that, 
you will have some regular cycles. Yeah, um, a great message. I, I really like that. Um, just to to finish off, um, Lucy, I just we, we've talked a lot about um, di- a dietary approach. We talked a lot about real food, but I'd really like to spell it out for people who are listening. Um, and you mentioned a little bit about red meat, but what exactly would you encourage people to be eating? Um, yep. In terms of 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 what we've talked about. Yeah. So. We have a little formula. So, and again, it's part of real life medicine. Our philosophy is is undoing diet culture. So, not you know, people don't need to weigh and measure everything in life. Like that's that becomes unhelpful. Measuring and dataing and tracking everything can be quite triggering. But basically, we say, you know what? Pick a protein. So, a good protein is going to be meat, fish, eggs, dairy, poultry. Pick a protein. If every meal you have some sort of protein. In an ideal world, you might want to know roughly how much because people, again, it's this thing. We don't know how much to eat. People have lost touch with their, how do, how much do I eat? And so, you know, they've, and they've been told a palm-sized piece of meat. Well, that's just rubbish. People need somewhere, depending on their, their body's needs, somewhere between one and two grams of protein per kilo per day. So if you weigh 100 kilos, you need at least 100 grams of protein and remembering that a piece of most meat, whether it's fish or protein or uh, fish or chicken or red meat, has somewhere between 20 and 25 grams of protein per 100 grams. So 200 grams of meat will give you somewhere between 40 and 50 grams of protein a day. And if you weigh 100 kilos, you need 100 grams. So uh, most people underestimate and undereat their protein. So our simple formula is Buckets of protein, have some protein, have some vegetables with it. If you like vegetables, great. Have some vegetables. Choose um, above ground vegetables. If your protein is very lean, have some fat with it. If it's I fill it, put some butter on it. If it's bacon, well, then you don't need extra fat. If it's pork belly, you don't need extra fat. But if it's, you know, a chicken breast, you do. And add some flavor, so some salt and some herbs. And that's it. It's so simple. That recipe, that formula works for everything. It's exactly how I live. So no need for any carbohydrates. You get your carbs from your vegetables. You don't need, you know, flour, potato, uh, sugar, obviously, rice, any of the grains. You just don't need them. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Really, really great advice and very simple and, and easy to follow. And if you can afford regenerative, regeneratively raised beef or wild caught, or you have someone that hunts, I mean, all the better. Um, but I think oh, that's absolutely that, yeah, that, that's fantastic and I think advice. That, again, it's um it, as as a person who has um, you know, I'm privileged enough to be able to afford good quality proteins. Um, so yeah, I will always get grass fed beef if I can. Um, you know, we're lucky we live on the peninsula where there's chicken farms where I get to go and see the chickens that are, you know, laying the eggs guarded by ostriches and those sorts <laughs> of things. There's absolutely no doubt that the quality of our food is important. And if I can buy from a farmer, then I, I think that is even better, um, particularly like an ethical, good quality farmer. Mm. And again, if you can, one of the things that I think is is as much is is part of this whole process is we need to become much more comfortable with eating all parts of the animal. Mm. So you know, twenty five years ago, I only ever ate chicken breast. Like I never ate the rest of the chicken, and now I, you know, I'll buy the wings, I'll buy the necks, I'll make broth, 
I haven't quite come to the chicken feet yet, but that's okay. (laughs) But yeah, I think if people can just move outside their comfort zone and try, just try, try something else. You don't have to just have, I feel it. It's not, it's not helpful. Yeah. Um, I couldn't, couldn't agree anymore. Um, that's fantastic, uh, Lucy. Do you have any final thoughts um, for the listeners about anything we've talked about? No. Only, well, only my only point is, again, just to re-emphasise that overeating is a combination of physiology and psychology. It's not your fault. We've been taught and marketed to eat this way, but nobody's coming to rescue you, so you need to change it for yourself. And sometimes, you know, there's there's lots of information out there but people can get over information overwhelmed. So always look to the source of your information. Make sure it's somebody that you trust. Fantastic. Yeah, I uh, 100% agree with that. And if patients want to get in touch with you or follow your work or um, have a consult, how, how can they do that? Yeah, so uh, we consult Australia-wide um, and we have online programs that are open worldwide. And so they can just go to our website. Um, you can Google Real Life Medicine or our actual website is RL Medicine, so RL for Real Life. Someone took the Real Life Medicine domain, but we're not quite ready to spend 10 grand just to get that. But rlmedicine.com, and that's got all of our stuff on it and Real Life Medicine on all the socials. Okay, fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much, uh, Lucy, for coming on and sharing all your experience and, and knowledge and wisdom with, with the listeners. So we very much appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me, Max. It has been a delight. All right. How was that? I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Lucy Burns. I think she offered so much practical and accessible advice for improving health and really just simple rules about improving our diet, um, and which is really addressing the, the core of what's going on and going wrong with obesity, with type 2 diabetes, with polycystic ovary syndrome, um, and so many people who are suffering today. And I really also liked her takes on um, the personal reasons why people uh, reach for sugar and refined foods. And I think that treating and understanding exactly the psychological reason why we might be inclined to self-soothe or self-medicate with some of these um, sweet uh, treats is um is really important so if you enjoyed the episode please share it out um and like subscribe comment um and yeah thanks for watching and um we'll see you again soon Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.